Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, today, I have a, a special guest. I have with me Dr. J.T. Turner, and we're going to be talking about his kind of overall project, um, but specifically as it's been laid out in the new TNT Clark Analytic Theology uh, Handbook, the Handbook of analytic theology. And this book is awesome. The guy who did the index is just an absolute stud. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to to get into uh, Dr. Turner's work. So uh, without further ado, let's just pull him in. Dr. Turner, thanks thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, yeah, the guy who did the index is a stud. This book is so huge. Uh, it's like, it's large, but it's also just massive in like the world of Christian theology. Just real quick, um, how did yeah. this come about? How did this project even start? Um, so in uh, 2016 and 2017, I was a postdoc uh, out in Fuller, out at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, um, working on Oliver Crisp's analytic theology project with uh, two other postdocs, James Arcadi, whom you know, mm-hmm. uh, and Jordan Wesling. And um I believe TNT Clark initially approached Oliver mm-hmm. to uh, help compile this handbook. And, you know, Oliver just had eight gajillion things going on right. and didn't have the time to do it, but thought the project should be done. And he um, suggested to Anna Turton, who does, who's like the editor over the religion and theology stuff at TNT Clark, and uh, suggested James and I as a you know potential fit. And either she reached out to us or we reached out to her. I can't remember who started that ball rolling, but the idea is that we needed to submit a proposal about how the project would look, and ultimately it got accepted, and that's how it went. So James and I started on that project, um, I think I've got this right, spring of um, 2017. So okay. right in the spring 2017. So we're coming up just now on a nearly four years yeah. for the project. Yeah. It was a long, long, a long project. Yeah. It's crazy. I remember, uh, Dr. Arcadia, I would be in his office and he'd say, well, what do you think about this cover? You like this cover or this cover? And so I got to see some of the behind the scenes kind of stuff. Super right. fun. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Jordan, Jordan was, uh, my neighbor here. His kids used to always run oh, up and yes, that's right. That's right. Running around naked and throwing mud pies at each other and stuff. Yeah. Those guys are wild. That's right. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like them. That sounds like them. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Turner, before we get into to some more of your work, uh, I wanted to ask you, how did you ever get into philosophy and theology and, and, and where are you at now? So I'm assistant professor of philosophy at Anderson university in South Carolina. That's, uh, not the Anderson University in Indiana, the Church of God School. We are a um, Baptist university here. Um, And by that, I just mean that we're affiliated with the South Carolina Baptist Convention, not that everybody on faculty is a Baptist. In the College of Christian Studies, we all are, uh, but not, you know, further afield. We're all um, 
evangelical Christians, um, or well, at least you know, professing Orthodox Christians anyway. Um, whether or not people want to take the evangelical uh, label or not is you know a kind of loaded today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy here. Uh, how did I get into philosophy and theology? Yeah. Well, that's a how, how how long how long do you have, Parker? <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Let me see if I can give a brief synopsis. As I like to tell my undergraduate students, um, I went to university to play ice hockey. I did not go to study. Um, I went to university to play ice hockey and find a wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did play ice hockey at university. I did not find a wife at university. That happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I didn't go really to pay attention. And, you know, when I'm teaching my intro to philosophy class, for example, I usually pick on the people in the back row and say, when I was 19, 20 years old, I was in the back row with, Mm. you know, my team hoodie pulled over my head and asleep at the back desk. Uh, That is to say, I wasn't a very studious person. Well, uh, after I graduated um, and, you know, went on to do some other work and then ended up in a job that didn't have a whole lot for me to do, um, I ended up just reading a whole lot. Now he's been mild. I'd always been mild. I was a Christian at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd always been mildly interested and wanted to be, oddly enough, wanted to be seriously interested in um, at least thinking well about God. And so I started reading like very intro, like very, very intro theology and philosophy texts, got sort of hooked on it, um, found a graduate degree in it ended up sort of begging my way into graduate school. I had no business being in the degree that I got into um, for a million reasons, but they let me in on academic probation. I ended up doing really well because I, at that point was like, Oh my gosh, learning is important. Um, And sort of hit the ground running and never left. (laughs) So, so so I ended up here. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's great. Well, so I, it's a a similar story to mine. I I went to uh, school to wrestle and I thought, I'm here to wrestle. I'm not, I don't care about anything else. I'll take an easy degree. Yep. And then it was uh, my senior year. Uh, I started like God opened up my mind and I, I was like, Oh shoot, I wasted all this time. I want to study yeah, stuff. Exactly. I, I met a philosophy student yeah. and I was like, there, we can talk about this kind of stuff. This is crazy. Right. Right. So then yeah, I got, yeah. yeah. And just ever since just want to learn more and more and more and more. So that's part of the reason for the podcast. Um, you know, people, you have a podcast and people come on and share all these insights with you. And it's basically like a second degree because I'm getting all of you, you experts come on and tell me your stuff. So super, uh, super exciting to have you on because we're going to be talking about uh, eschatology, personal eschatology and the metaphysics of of human persons, kind of a, kind of a broad topic. I don't know how much we'll be able to get into, but hopefully a lot. Um, Just real quick, when we're talking about eschatology, what, what does that word mean for people who don't don't have any clue. Uh, so eschatology really concerns the doctrine of the so-called last things, mm-hmm. what's going to happen really when Jesus returns. Uh, now, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I, I don't run in these circles anymore, but my undergraduate institution um, thought about last things in a very, as it turns out, idiosyncratic way of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, like hardcore, what we call premillennial dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. So the main thrust of this idea is that, uh, you know, after Jesus's resurrection and ascension to heaven, at some point in the future, he will sort of like halfway return body, Mm -hmm. snatch a bunch of people, 
There'll be like a seven year tribulation going on. And then Jesus will return with all of his people to, you know, set up shop as, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like, uh, you know, a, a sort of an idiosyncratic version, but there are many different versions of how to think about the uh, end of all things. Um, my own view doesn't, my own work doesn't uh, get in, well, doesn't really get into so-called pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill sorts of things. Um, it really, my work has to do generally with what are the sorts of things that we all, no matter the eschatological outlook, uh, agree on? And, um, you know, so my own view is a particular way that the world would just end up. Like, what's the, what is the new creation like? What's that sort of thing? And what are the theological and philosophical ramifications of the way in which the new creation will be? That sort of thing. Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting about your, your work is, it, it, in one sense, it's saying like, "Hey, it's not it's not as important as you guys think." Uh, and and by that you mean the the debates between, you know, we're reading the newspaper and we're seeing hey, who's going to be the antichrist, right? And that's kind of the the Dispies are going that route, and the Amils are, you know, fighting between uh, pessimistic and optimistic, optimistic, and the you know the Reconstructionists are going wild, and everyone's everyone's freaking out. And it's you're saying, "Hey, look, it's it, let's focus on." what we can all agree on, right? but it's also epically important because uh, you, you get into telos, uh, what, what the, the telos of, of humanity is and uh, the world. So I'm wondering uh, when it comes to like theological triage type stuff, where does eschatology fall um, when, when it's described the way you describe it? Yeah. So I, I, oddly, I, if you if you pick up a normal systematic theology text, you'll usually see that eschatology falls at the end of the book. They're like, well, it's the doctrine of last thing, so let's talk about it last. Hmm. Usually, doctrine of God is up front, and eschatology is last. Um, I am not quite sure that eschatology should go first before the doctrine of God, but I do think that it should go, uh, if not before. Uh, the doctrine of human beings, um, or simultaneous with in some way. And the reason I say that is because I think, as I try and spell out in the chapter in the handbook, is that I think that when we think about the end of humans, we shouldn't mean think of that word as like a chronological end. I think we should see it as like a purpose, hence telos. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the goal? What is the purpose? What's the, what their foreness of a human being and once we figure that sort of thing out if we can then we'll have a better understanding of what human beings are so trying to divorce our discussion of human beings what human beings are in themselves and in relation to god without thinking about what humans are for ends up i think getting the conversation the wrong way around it's like trying to diagnose or talk about a chair without without understanding what a chair is for Mm. um it becomes incoherent in a in very quickly um like if i describe a piece of furniture to you and you have no concept of sitting on a piece of furniture and the the topic of sitting on the furniture or, or that it's supposed to you know support you and be comfortable never enters in, into the equation probably you'll have no idea what we're talking about yeah um, and 
Well, yeah. for the listeners, uh, this this might sound like, you know, ivory tower talk, but I've had this conversation with my wife about chairs where it's like, no, they tell us is to feel good. I don't care yes. how they look. Yes, she's that's like, right. You need to have a good aesthetic. And it's like, well, I don't, the aesthetic doesn't feel good at, when I sit down. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, so I have had those same discussions with my wife who has a particular sensitivity to aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably think that, uh, there's some way for those two things to meet, sure. um, you know, yeah. where ugliness is against the telos of anything good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we might think that way, but right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's obvious. I mean, it's just obvious for anything. If we want to know truly what the object is, we have to know what it's for. So the, the example I like to use with my students is, you know, think about Michelangelo's statue of the David, Right. If he had no idea what the end product was supposed to be, where he was going to set it up, what its function was going to be, then when he starts chiseling it away at that thing, it could have been anything. You know, it's 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 be sort of random mm-hmm. how it turned out. But uh, the what Aristotle calls the final cause of the thing, the purpose of the thing informed exactly how to make it the thing that it is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true of every object that exists. And in, that includes humans. Even the way you said that kind of drew something out in me. It informed it. And you kind of think of like the, the form and it's in. Yeah. yeah, that's wow. That's interesting. That's right. Yep. Um, this might be kind of a speculative question. It might not be a, an answer to it or, or not. But when you think of the telos of the universe and the telos of human beings, um, just in, in your mind, does one come first? Or is it like this might be like re- it's reformed uh, terminology, like post or infra and super lapsarianism. But did, did God create the universe for us or did he create us uh, for the universe kind of thing? Or, or is there no way to tell? So that's a good question. I suppose in my own mind, um, and I've just started writing about this, you know, recently in the last five years or so, um, following off of the work of uh, N.T. Wright and J. Richard Middleton and G.K. Beale and, and biblical theologians like that, right. that uh, and um, John Walton and, and various folks. Uh, I've come to uh, believe that what the Christian scriptures are telling us is that God has made the universe to be his own home, to be a temple uh, to himself. So a place where he as a God dwells with his creation and the place wherein he's worshiped. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a temple, right? If you walk into the ancient temple in Israel, you should expect to meet God, especially the further in that you go. Right. It uh, gets, you know, more and more dangerous, if you like, uh, the further and further in you go. And it's the place where he's worshipped. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the entire creation was meant to be that. And I take it that that's the project uh, of God's creation and why humans are here. Mm-hmm. Um, so was the creation made for us? Not in my view. Were we made for the creation Yes, I think that we are the things through which um, the God revealed in Jesus. So Yahweh, I hope people don't mind me using his personal name, um, intends to rule and reign and steward his own house. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, okay, that's awesome. So the telos of the universe is as God's temple. And can can you flesh that out? So some people might be hearing, you know, God made a house as if... Yeah. You know, um, we hear Paul talking in Acts 17, like God, God is 
does not live in temples, you know, sure. that he should be worshipped. Can you can you explain what? So someone might think, someone might react against that and say, even Paul said God doesn't live in temples. So how could he live in the in the universe? Um, what, yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah. So um, when Paul's saying God doesn't live in temples, I take it that he means that God does not dwell in the very obvious. Greek temples and Roman temples that were surrounding him at the time. Yeah. Uh, if you'd asked him, did God at all dwell with his people, that is to say, live with his people in, say, the Holy of Holies before he evacuated? Um, I would have to think that he would say yes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole tragedy. The That sort of bizarre scene in Ezekiel with the whirling wheels of the chariot and God sort of just leaving the throne room of right. of, of um, the temple that the holy of holies like that's a that's a bad deal because oh my gosh now our god no longer dwells with us mm-hmm. um uh so uh, that's just a long way of saying i don't think that paul has that in mind i don't think paul is trying to say no god never lived with his people it, is it the case that god is exhaustively contained inside any created object well no um right. I'm not sure how he could be. Um, the containment relation there anyway is going to be not one uh, of what the medievals might call circumscription, whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, this object is like surrounded by an area of space. Right. Um, we mean something else. What that something else is, is uh, very mysterious. In fact, I published a paper that gives a, a model of how it might work, but um the long story short is uh, the way I mean temple and the way that biblical theologians are thinking about this being temple is not intended to imply that uh, we can go, Oh, I see God has boundaries yeah. and they are, you know, the far end of the cosmos this way and the far end of the cosmos that way. Right. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's uh, on my mind because in, in Dr. Arcadi's class, we're going through uh, panentheism right now. So all the, the, all that kind of language, God's body and stuff like that, it's happening. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to, to reaffirm for the folks back home. That's not what he's saying. And, and God's not like a, a hermit crab looking for a new home or something yeah. like that, but it's, it's, it's different than that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it's, I mean, just think about the language of John one, where it mm-hmm. says that uh, in Christ, God, you know, dwelled with us. And the word that it's using there um, is uh tabernacled sort of imagery god made his tent or dwelling with us in the human jesus now what's that relationship like well we call that incarnation uh we can make heads or tails of it being um coherent and well unless you're jc beal not strictly contradictory (laughs) yeah you don't have to anymore yeah right in the gates um you know, I usually go, I, I usually think Tim Paul may be on the, on the right route there. But in any case, um, how, how does it work? Well, we don't really know. Uh, I'm pro- of the opinion probably will never fully uh, know. So it strikes me that uh, God could have some kind of an indwelling relation with the entire cosmos, too. Mm-hmm. That would be just as mysterious, but not incoherent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a so. Beale's book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, has been on my list forever. Everyone says, like, that's, like, one of the best biblical theology books ever. But um, so you mentioned him uh, as someone who's influenced you. Middleton was another, uh, N.T. Wright. How did you get into your – you're a philosopher, 
Um, yeah. you, you teach philosophy. Did you study, um, was your, was your PhD, um, philosophy? I forgot. No, PhD is in, uh, syst- technically systematic theology, okay. but it was analytic theology. So I'm doing right, right. You know, metaphysics and theology with it. Um, so, we're getting well, Ferguson. Yeah. Okay. Now, now you're bringing the, the new Testament scholars and, uh, this is really interesting. This is something, uh, I, I heard in a different interview that you were on. I think it was maybe further in Christendom, but you're, you're trying to bring the new studies in, in, uh, biblical studies into analytic theology, right. Christian philosophy, say, Hey guys, like we, we should also pay attention to these guys. How, how'd you even, how did that come to be your demeanor? Oh man, I might, I might alienate myself here from a lot of my evangelical brother, brothers uh-huh. and sisters. Um, at least of the Southern Baptist persuasion. I happen mm. to be a Southern Baptist. That's like a bad word right now, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, right. we've got a whole mess. Any case, that's a different topic. Um, I, uh, started so I read this book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Mm-hmm. Wright back in 08 or 09, something like that. And um, I had been thinking about uh, during my first master's degree uh, the bodily resurrection. I had different sorts of research questions about it, but the more I read about the bodily resurrection and the importance of the bodily resurrection in uh, in Christian theology, the more I just kept thinking, why? You know, why? Why is it so important? Like, what's the thrust of all this? Like, you know, I was a substance dualist at the time. So I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I was an immaterial soul that had a body, but didn't need a body. We'll talk, maybe talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I thought about afterlife, I just thought about, you know, going to heaven. And, you know, if there's a you know resurrection, that's cool. But that was so much an afterthought. I mean, I thought about resurrection maybe on Easter Sunday and right. that was it. Um, but then I started in graduate school, uh, you know, just randomly during, uh, you know, one of these normal sort of quiet times you might have reading the Bible in the morning, trying to, you know, listen to God. And I was reading uh, Matthew 22. And he's got that bit where he's arguing with the Sadducees about the importance of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection. And that entire exchange just blew my mind Mm -hmm. as I sat there and thought about what he was saying, that in Exodus 3, 6, God essentially preaches the truth of the resurrection. I'm Mm -hmm. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Side note, they're not dead. What? (laughs) That's the proof of the resurrection? How is that working? Right. Um, Yeah, in any case. uh, So as I'm in that study, you know, my mind is just sort of blossoming with all these ideas. And this coincides with Tom Wright's work in Surprised by Hope. And that just blew the doors open where hmm. all sorts of things just started to click into place. Then I read his resurrection of the son of God and I read how God became king. And then I got turned on to, you know, um, Greg Beale and Middleton and all, you know, a whole bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's this whole litany of biblical theology where they are fleshing out what the like the scriptural story, the whole canonical story is telling us about the resurrection Meanwhile, in my analytic philosophy and analytic theology work, nobody's paying attention to this. Right. And they're going on with all this stuff in, you know, all their research and papers and books and stuff on personal eschatology, so afterlife, mm-hmm. without, without any reference to uh, the recent biblical theological material. And when I say recent, I mean like 40-odd years worth, so not that recent. Right. Um, and I thought – that's not good. We don't do that for the sciences. We try and make sure that we're up to date on the sciences. Why are we leaving our biblical, what, what 
everything we're supposed to be doing is supposed to be making sense of what the Bible's saying. Um, and so I just thought there was a major problem and just dedicated myself to trying to overcome it. Yeah, that is a really good point, too. You know, if up, the up-to-date philosophy is always brought in, right? And so how can we use this in the next paper in, in philosophic, Philosophia Christi or something? But right. but yeah, the, the Bible, that's, that's such an interesting point I hadn't thought about. Okay, wow, I got some more reading to do. Um, just just real quick as we as we close up on on the the telos of the universe. So the the telos of the universe is that it is God's temple. Does this have implications for creation care or after you know after post lapsarian you know after the fall? Is it kind of a wash or or is it different? Did the telos change? What, what do you think? So. No, uh, the telos didn't change. It's always been like, I think, so the long story is that Genesis, Genesis, the way I read Genesis one now, and just to put my cards on the table, I was telling a student here earlier, I, my research languages are Greek and German. I don't do Hebrew. Okay. So I lean heavily on secondary literature. I just started to have to trust this, the uh, experts in the area. Uh, and in fact, my, the old Testament, um, uh, prof here in my department, uh, Brian Cribb. Uh, thankfully, you know, I sort of bounce ideas off him from time to yeah. time. And he agrees with this sort of reading. In any case, um, the story I think that Genesis 1 is telling us is that God's, uh, you know, setting up a temple for himself. He's invited humans into that temple building project and temple care project. Um, he's invited them to be royal priests in his temple, so mm -hmm. ruling and reigning and also bringing the blessings of God and Eden out to the world. Mm -hmm. Of course, they mess up in a bad way, um, and things go quite south. Uh, and the story is, okay, how's how's God going to get – like the narrative just is, how's God going to get this thing back on track? Uh, and we're sort of left hanging if you're you know reading just the Hebrew Bible – um, at, uh, at the end of, I think their last book is Chronicles, I believe, mm -hmm. sort of left with, okay, these people got released from, uh, captivity to go back and rebuild the temple. So is Yahweh going to return now? Hmm. And of course he doesn't immediately. Um, but the new Testament claims that he does in Jesus, this is what's happening. And so John one in particular is a there's a reason it starts like the creation narrative. It's a new creation narrative. Right. Um, God is beginning the work of new creation in and through Jesus, you know, in his life. That's why his life's important. He's doing new creation work. Uh, his death is going to exhaust the penalty, at least, of sin and death in himself. And then his resurre resurrection is the inauguration of the breaking in of uh, the future new creation. Mm -hmm. In any case. Um, Oh man, now I've lost track. What was the question? Cre oh, creation, creation care. care. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. right. Um, so creation care to my mind has always been important uh, in the sense that it's never ceased to be the thing uh, out of which God will make his temple. He's, this is supposed to be his temple. He's going to make it a, 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 um, a home fitting for him. Mm -hmm. And, those people who are, namely Christians, uh, those people who are his royal priests and priestesses should be uh, about caring for his temple. And mm -hmm. that just is creation care. Yeah. Uh, we, 
it, uh, I'm just convinced that God is not going to wad this creation up and chuck it out as so much garbage. Yeah. I mean, not at all. God died for this creation. I and mean, it's Hos- 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 Hoskosmos. He died for not just me and you. He died for this. Yeah. Um, to set it right. So so I think anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a that's a really important point. And I really like that because uh, it it de-emphasizes in one sense, it de-emphasizes like the, the importance of man that this isn't like uh, just our playground to just rip stuff up. And yeah, I think I like this today. I'm going to go destroy that. And uh, so it's not it's not our playground, but it's something we're, we're supposed to care for. And so the, the universe is a, is a really big deal. And we have a huge part to play in that for ill or for good. And mo- it's been mostly for ill for a long, long time. Um, well, it's, I don't know if I want to say mostly for ill, but definitely large parts of it uh, for sure. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, and, and I, I want to be careful on the use of playground. So I don't think that play necessarily is bad. I, I sure. guess what, what you mean is um, irresponsible play or unreflective sure. play or something like that. Yeah. Uh, where we can just willy nilly do whatever we want. No, I think uh, that's right. Yeah. We have to rule with actual wisdom which to my mind requires that we lean on we lean on the spirit to rule in the way that God wants us to. Yeah. yeah. That's those are those are helpful clarifications. So in your mind are we I'm thinking like I got this tree outside my window here and yeah. if it continues living, you know, if if Christ comes back. So I'm kind of more pessimistic Amil, I think Christ could come back anytime. Yeah. Things things might get worse, they might get better, but let's say he does come back today. Is this tree going to be the same tree in the new heavens and the new earth, you think? Uh, I don't know, uh, to be honest with you. Um, in my own work, I've offered a model of resurrection and new creation that is quite bizarre. <laughs> not, not ex- I'm not committed to its being true. It's really just a model. Like, here's a way we could think about it that might make it coherent. Mm-hmm. And inside that model, I suggest that Maybe some things are what I call ontologically thick, and some things are ontologically thin. Mm -hmm. So the ontologically thick sorts of things might be like my dog Theo or the tree outside your window, um, living organisms that might be brought back from death to life. Now, what's the pebble outside your window going to do? Is it, well, it's not. It's neither dead nor alive. Uh, right. so will it be brought into the new creation or resurrected? I, I mean, maybe, but I, I guess I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, whereas the tree outside your window, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Okay. Yeah, that's that's cool. So, so this kind of brings us into uh, the telos of of human personhood. Yeah. Which which also gets into you know, like the constitution of 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 humans. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So the telos of humans is to be image bearers of God. Uh, how do you flesh that out yourself? Well, um, so again, I'm going to lean really heavily on the biblical theologians. And um, it's, I'm going to say this phrase, and you're going to think it's crazy. And those people who aren't in the literature are going to think it's crazy. But there is, believe it or not, in academia, a near consensus on what the image of God is. Now, that consensus is not in systematic theology. Mm-hmm. The consensus is in what the biblical theologians are saying, mm-hmm. namely that there just is a particular way to understand what it is that the Hebrew Bible, anyway, is telling us about images. 
And what are images of, of gods? Well, um, they are representatives of the deity. They don't have to look like the deity. They don't have to be made of the same stuff as the deity. They just have to be this thing. So, you know, in this location that if you walked in, you would go, oh, I see. This is so-and-so God's location. This is where this God rules and reigns. Yeah. Well, that's what we are for the one true and living God. So everywhere you go in creation, if you run into an image bearer, namely a human, you should go, oh, I see. This is a lo location in which Yahweh rules and reigns. So yeah. if you were to go, say, to uh, Mars or Alpha Centauri or something like that, it's Alpha Centauri a star, I don't know, whatever. I always, yeah, I always do that too. Yeah. How about that, Tatooine or um, Kashyyyk or something? Mm -hmm. um, so the Star Wars, some of my students don't know what that stuff is. So. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> Star Wars, you see, it's a big movie. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, if you go to a planet like that and somebody runs into a human, they should uh, go, oh, cool. Uh, Yahweh's represented here as well. This is a place where he rules and reigns. Um, and that's just what image bearing is. Now, the key separator for a Christian understanding and even a Jewish understanding, I would guess, on what image bearing is has to do with the very specific God that we are representing mm -hmm. and what that God has required of his image bearers. So it's not like Yahweh's just like, here, y'all just stand here and that's fine. Everybody will know. It's more like, no, no, if you're going to represent me, you got to do this particular thing in this particular way. I have a way I want my house to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, humans properly are doing the image bearing task when we're ruling and reigning the way God, uh, Yahweh wants us to. Yeah. We are still image bearers when we mess up, but we're not doing, we're not doing the task very well. We're like bad at the job. Um, so yeah. Well, that I, I don't think that's crazy. I think that's awesome. That's how I try to uh, explain it to my students on campus as well. Um, I just I always think of like little mini statues. And it's like, hey, if whoever I'm talking with, like yeah. if, if you made a bunch of statues of statues of yourself to go around campus and let everyone know who you are. Hey, here's how, you know, this represents me. Your character tells tells everyone about what you like to do. Um, there would be little, little image bearers of you. Yes, um, but then imagine they start going rogue and saying like, all sorts of evil, wicked things about you. It's like, what would you do? And it's like, well, I'd collect them up and smash them, throw them in the fire. <laughs> and I'm like, right, you wouldn't, you know, become one of them and die and let them crucify you and then die sure. for this. And the, yeah. the analogy starts to break down a little bit. But I think that's so important for understanding sin because, like, why is it? Why, who cares? I stole a, a pack of gum. Like, that's not that big of a deal, you know? Right. But when you think about it as, hey, you're God's representative, you're telling everyone around you, you're telling the whole cosmos, God is a thief. Right. And it's like you're misrepresenting the God of the universe. That's crazy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And anytime I, I start thinking about that, I recognize like my sin a little bit deeper. And it's it's so nuts that he would not just destroy me right out. Yes. Yeah, uh, God is very gracious and loving. Yeah. 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 So so we got um, so representatives. That's I, I like that. Um, I, I think that's really helpful. I think yeah, the, the philosophers and, and some of the A.T.'s. Um, we'll go, well, how, how is he representing? Right. You know, how, how are, and that's the, the interesting part. How do we get to that part? Um, I don't know. You, you've, I, I grabbed one of your sentences cause I thought it was really interesting to think through. You said one cannot be a divine image if one is disembodied. Can yeah. you, can you help us um, think through it? Can you motivate that for us? 
Yeah. So, I mean, again, um, I'm going to lean really heavily on the biblical theological scholarship. Uh, again, part of the consensus of what a divine image bearer is, which is an ancient Near Eastern idea. It doesn't mm -hmm. start with Christianity. It doesn't start with Judaism as far as we know. It starts with ancient Near Eastern religions. Um, and the, um, the meanings of the terms don't really change. Uh, in the conversation, even when they're imported into uh, Genesis one and two, and mm. so on, and part and parcel of uh, what it is to be an image, like just part of the meaning of the term is to be a localizable, visible entity, something mm. that you could see. Hence, image. Like we have no concept of image at all, even in the English language, that's invisible. Mm. Like if I tell you, I've got an image of something. And then you go, let me see it. And I say, oh, no, you can't see it. You would say, yeah. I don't know what you mean by image. Hmm. Um, we usually mean like a picture or something, something I can see that represents the object we're trying to talk about. Um, so, you know, when people were asking, you know, you saw the cover art before uh, the book was published. Uh, people, when I first got the PDF, people were like, oh, I heard you got an image of the cover. Can I see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I just said, no, no. Um, yeah, yeah. I've got the image, right. But it's invisible. Um, so you can't see it. They would think, I, I don't, I don't think you understood my request. I thought you said you had an image. Mm -hmm. So I asked him anyway, you get the point yeah. um, that uh, the semantics of that word is not so divorced from what um, the ancient Near East would have thought. Mm -hmm. And so that requires bodies. Now, what kind of body? Well, that's, a different story um you know to to my mind uh a body could be the sort of thing that say a force ghost is and for those again watching star wars right if you watch episodes four five and six you've got obi-wan kenobi who is you know embodied he's mm -hmm. walking around he's sitting down in the dagobah system he's glowing and so on but he's standing yeah. there he's wearing clothes that's a body um it takes up space uh, if you watch episode nine, Luke Skywalker, who's a force ghost, catches a lightsaber. Uh, that's a body. It's not no body at all. It's a different kind of body, but it's still a body nonetheless. It's something I can see. Um, and so that's the idea is if if you're an image bearer, you must be must be necessarily hmm. um, a, a body, an embodied thing. And that's again, that's pulling from the, the semantics and the in the the o OT scholars and, and then the new T scholar, NT scholars as well, who are saying that's just what it meant. So someone might say, well, God is spirit and we represent him as localizable spirits. And you yeah. might quibble with that and say, well, no, spirits aren't extended in time and space because they're not physical. Right. So, so to be an image of God is to be a, a, a physical, is it, uh, does that commit us to like a, a physicalism? Well, so that's where we're going to get fuzzy. What do we mean by physical? Mm -hmm. uh, so I am not a physicalist. Mm -hmm. uh, I am what we might call an animalist. Mm -hmm. uh, that's because for various reasons we might talk about later. Um, uh, but is it a thing that is in space and time and has a particular location? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Mm -hmm. That to me is sufficient for being a body. Um, is there other stuff out of which a thing could be made that uh, we won't count as physical? 
maybe, um, but if you think physics just can study whatever is, maybe not exhaustively study, but study at least in principle, uh, whatever is in space and time or localizable in space and time, uh, then we can count whatever that is as physical. Okay. Um, like information, I know that's kind of a weird category. People have a hard time fitting in. Yeah, I don't know if information is um, a physical thing or not. I would guess probably not. I think what physics uh, investigates when it's doing physics would be things that carry information yeah, rather than right. information itself. Okay. Um, information usually is semantic content. It has meaning. Mm-hmm. And I don't take physical things to mean stuff. Okay. Persons mean stuff with physical things. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. But, okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, the meaning of my sentence I'm giving you right now uh, is embodied in the sentence, but it's not identical to the sentence, and it's not a physical thing like the sentence is that I'm giving to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so is it is it possible to think, um, maybe someone agrees with you and says, one cannot be a divine image if one is disembodied, and uh, they're a dualist, and they say, well... Okay, but when in the intermediate state, if there is, you know, I know that you have a, a particular view of this, but if there is an intermediate state where the soul returns to God, goes to heaven or hell, um, is it conceivable to say, well, they're a, a disembodied person, but they're no longer an image at sure. that moment? Yep. Yeah, if you think that um, it's not essential mm. to what it is to be a human being, to be an image bearer, then you could say, uh, yes, you know, Jones, who's disembodied, is no longer an image bearer, even though still human because human soul. Yeah. But of course, some people think that on, you know, the substance dualist account where, you know, you're just identical with this immaterial soul, that you're not a human when you're disembodied anyway, because the right. human bit of you is the animal here. And yeah. you're just like a generic soul of some kind. Okay. Um, either way, you could cease to be an image bearer. Um, now, what the dualist could say at that point is um, even though it's not essential to you as the kind of thing that you are, namely a soul, nevertheless, for you to flourish in your best capacity, you should be image bearing. Hence, Mm -hmm. we need you to have a body again and so on. We can look for the resurrection and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think I would want to say that it's essential to a human to be an image. Would, would would you say it's an essential trait or characteristic or property of a of a human to be an image bearer? Um, so I'm, honestly, I'm kind of ambivalent on it. I my intuitions tell me no. Um, okay. My intuitions tell me that it's more than intuitions. I, I it's I think because of the way image bearing uh, works, it strikes me as at least possible that Yahweh could have appointed any other creature to be the thing that represents him. Hmm. um, Could he have appointed, say, a raccoon if uh, what he wanted from his image bearers was to rule and steward his cosmos? Well, no, probably not, because raccoons don't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. At that point, he needed persons of some kind. Did he need human persons? Well, I'm not so sure he needed human persons. Um, Maybe he could have made robot persons or something. Yeah. Um, And then they could have been his image bearers. So I'm at least, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I I don't know if I want to say I'm convinced, but 
I'm very sympathetic to the view that it's not essential to us, but it is uh, since we were created with uh, image bearing in mind. I do take it that for us properly to flourish uh, is to image bear uh, well. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. It brings back to mind uh, Lewis's space trilogy. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's different there's different aliens, uh, right. and they're still image bearers. They, they just image differently, and each you know the Seroni or the kind of the rational, yeah. and then the Fifthletrigi or like yeah, different aspects. That's really interesting. Okay, I wonder what he would have. I mean, if he did choose a raccoon, like I don't know, craftiness or something. I don't know. Those guys. Yeah, are I mean, uh, you know, who knows? It could have just been like because <laughs> I mean, to my mind, Yahweh can perfectly steward for the creation all by himself. He doesn't yeah, totally need us, right? Yeah, right. It's a gracious act that he's invited us in to do this. I don't have any idea why he did mm-hmm. it, um, but he gracious. I mean, probably for the same reasons that you know, if you have kids, of course you can do all the projects around their house without them. But yeah. actually, as an act of grace and love towards them, you invite them along to help you with the projects because yeah. it makes them be better. Yeah, it's good for them. Yeah. 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 It might um, it might make your task go way longer, but it's good for them to develop in that manner. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, if Yahweh had just decided, no, no, I can just take care of all this by myself, uh, still he could have made raccoons so that, say, human beings could have been around. Mm-hmm. And we would go, oh, great, this is where the raccoons are. So reminder, Yahweh's here, that sort Interesting. of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Do you th- – um, I was just speaking with someone about a kind of a sub-imaging in creation. Um I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't looked into it a ton, but do you think that raccoons in some way uh, image God? Of course, not in the to the degree or in the manner that we do, but does all of creation in in some aspect image God or, or not quite? No, um, it, it's so not in the very specific way that I think image is meant to mean or ah. is meant to mean. That's redundant, but means. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in the biblical literature, does everything testify to the existence of God and his rule and reign? Yes. But I think that images are meant to be more than that. Images are um, not just representing the rule and reign of God. They are saying, this is God's temple. Yeah. Um, it's not just that God built this thing and left away. It's no, no, this is the place wherein which God is supposed to be worshiped. This is where he dwells. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that was the last, that's the last thing that goes into the ancient temples. Boom. Here's the image right in the last of the temple. The temple uh, is now complete so that when you walk in, you know, ah, this is where uh, Yahweh lives. Um, you could walk into, say, um, an ancient Greek temple after somebody had raided it and destroyed all the images and somebody who thought that the, you know, ancient Greek God was a real God. They might go, oh, man, no, uh, you know, Athena is no longer here uh, because the image is utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would not cease to be, it would not uh, cease to be the case that, um, you know, that thing wasn't built for Athena or something like that. It would just be, well, she's not worshipped in this location anymore. Yeah. Whereas, uh, right, that's that could be the case if no, like suppose God didn't appoint any image bearers or something like that. You could still know that this is God's creation but it wouldn't be, we wouldn't have a specific object telling us this is the place where God dwells and is to be worshiped. That's mm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's really helpful. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about animalism 
and okay. uh, hylomorphism or, or high. I, I see you always spell it with a, with an e. Hylomorphism yes, uh, because hule in Greek has an eta and not an omega or omicron. <laughs> I don't know why anybody puts an o in there. It's, I always uh, see the o. Oh, I always see a hylomorphism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Can you just explain? So, what what is animalism? Well, animalism is a pretty easy uh, thesis generally. It just says, look, humans are identical with human organisms. So, mm. you know, um, and more importantly, uh, the individual human. So Parker said a case is, mm. is identical with the animal, the human organism I'm looking at through this screen. Yeah. Um, why is it called animalism? Well, if you take a look at a biological classification, you're an animal. You fall under that kingdom mm-hmm. or a specific kind of animal, namely human. My my students often get uh, when they initially hear this, they're like, "What? I'm 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 not a dog or a cat. I'm not reducible to such things." I'm like, "Well, hold on. Animalists aren't. Most of them aren't saying that. Uh, we're just recognizing the very obvious fact that whatever this thing is, it is a living organism of a particular kind, right. namely a locomotive, sensing, reproducing sort of kind, namely an animal." Mm-hmm. And animalism is just the idea that I am identical to the thing that's in my seat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and could that, in- I always hear of animalism and I hear physicalism and I know mm-hmm. that's not, that's not right, but that's, it's kind of yeah. the animalist that I've read and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you be a dualist and be an animalist? You can't be a substance dualist and be an animalist. Uh, You can be an anti-physicalist and be an animalist. Yeah, like property Uh, dualist or something. Is it dualism? Mm, Depends on how you mean dualism. But hylomorphism, for example, is not physicalism. Um, Physicalism, on my way of thinking anyway, is something like the thesis that human beings are um, either identical to or constituted by things that have physical properties, essentially. And here's the important part. Are, are composed only of physical parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hylomorphist is going to reject that because, or at least my brand of hylomorphist will reject it, uh, because we think that um, physics and physical stuff isn't going exhaustively to explain the human animal. We have to appeal to metaphysical causes, namely form and prime matter. Yeah. Um, so principles of actuality and potentiality things well they're not even really objects or things they are explanatory causes for individual objects and that that's uh that's not just about that's not a thesis just about humans that's a thesis about everything in the world uh bracketing god god is a different sort of uh thing altogether but everything else is a form and matter composite a hylomorphic entity nothing is purely physical so the hylomorphist is going to disagree with the dualist and the physicalist both and say, um, it's not just that I'm not purely physical. It's that nothing is purely physical. Mm-hmm. The dualist will think that my dog is purely physical or the chair I'm sitting on is purely physical. The hylomorphist will just disagree. Nothing. Yeah. Is. Yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting. So is the so is the form like is your form uh, form of man and then uh, just g- generically like the form of man and then the composites that make up, you know, JT Turner or is your form JT Turner? Are they both like, I know we always say psychosemantic unity and no one, no one ever like sufficiently explains that, but what, what's the form of, of us? Uh, so it depends on who you ask. Um, 
it, so hylomorphism has lots of tricky and difficult things to think about. Of mm. course, I think every view does. Sure. Um, so uh, what I say here, hopefully it makes some sense. Uh, it makes sense in my mind. Hopefully it makes some sense in yours. Um, Hylomorphists are interesting in that often we will run ourselves into a particular problem where we say that everybody has the same human form. I've got a human form. You've got a human form. What's that? Well, it's the, you know, actualizing principle about us, the shaping and structuring principle about us that causes us to be humans on a particular substance of a substance of a particular kind, human as opposed to a squirrel, a tree, a frog, a cat, a rock, or whatever. It, expl it explains why we are the thing we are and not something else. Uh, so like that sounds like a generic human form. And then what sometimes homomorphists will say is that what particularizes you, what makes you a particular instance of human, is the material that is informed by the form. I don't know that that's right, because... Yeah. On the other on the other hand, I mean, you'll see this simultaneously in Aquinas. Um, on the other hand, Aquinas, on my read and on the readings of other Thomas, um, thinks that uh, the necessary and sufficient condition for your organism to be at this particular time to be identical to some future organism is that it has one and the same substantial form, one and the same form. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't make any sense if you and I both yeah. have the same form. Right. So to my mind, um, is there one form of uh, human? Well, no. Um, there is one kind of cause, namely a human formal cause, but that I, to my mind, comes out in individual human causal forms. So mm. I've got a human causal form, you've got a distinct human causal form, and so on. It's of the same kind, but numerically distinct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what what is the form animating us? Like what 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 animates us? Um, so we not, no thing is animating us. We okay. are animated things. Okay. okay. Um, what explains like what, uh, what sort of causal, um, what sort of causal apparatus or whatever word you want to use helps explain our being animated or alive? Mm -hmm. Well, the form. Um, but again, you know what I, I'm using that term form as if it's a thing. It's not. We are formed things. Things yeah. aren't for, um, uh, forms aren't things. Right. Aristotle on my read and Thomas on my read is not a full blown Platonist. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, in order to talk, at least in a way we can understand, uh, given how thingy our language is, we say uh, the form causes us to be. Uh, alive and that's true but what when i say the form i don't mean it's a thing causing us to be some further thing i mean i'm the thing and it's a thing only insofar as it causes me to be um alive yeah yeah there's no uninstantiated forms out there floating around and there's right. no like there's there's no gingerbread man uh cookie cutter 
You just you're you're exactly. yeah. you're a gingerbread man insofar as you fit the that form. Right. You know, so you know, think about um, you know, your smile. Is a smile a thing? Well, yes and no. Uh, no in the fullest sense. There's no smile without a smiler. The right. smiler is the thing and the thing is smiling. Yeah. Um, I'm the thing and I'm formed, right? So yeah. the, like trying to separate the form from me is like trying to have a smile without you. Yeah, that's good. You can have a concept of a smile, but e- yeah, and even that's going to be informed by different instantiations of of smiles. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. picturing something that's smiling, right? Yeah, okay. That's right. Okay, that's interesting. Um there's some there's some really wild things that you got into uh I don't know how helpful it'll be to get into, but maybe I can just toss them out and you can see if you want to grab them. Um, Because the the reason, so some people say, well, who cares? You know, what's the big deal with this? Well, it matters because of the resurrection, you know? So a dualist, I'm by myself being a a dualist for now, um, would say, well, yeah, the the soul goes to be with God and comes back and God creates a new body. um, And you could parse that however you want. Um, But if you don't have a soul, then you're going to have to think of the resurrection in a slightly different manner. Yeah. and so, and that's, and that's what you do. And you, you start thinking through this. And so I thought maybe we could start with, uh, are the, are the particle are the particles, uh, for the resurrected body, are they numerically identical to the particles in your, uh, pre-mortem body before you died? I, I doubt it. Um, yeah. I, I don't, there's, to my mind, there's no reason that they should be, okay. um, but I don't know that it's impossible. Um, so Stephen Davis and Eric Yang have, uh, so Stephen Davis wrote a paper back in 2010, uh, that he and uh, Eric Davis sort of expanded on in 2015, 16, something like that in the journal of analytic theology on a view they call, um, oh gosh, the modern patristic view or something like that, mm-hmm. um, this reassembly view of the resurrection. Now, I don't know that they're committed to the view, but they're saying, hey, look, um, the patristics, like their church fathers were committed to this claim that the very same stuff has got to come back to re uh, to be part of the resurrected body. Yeah. And um, they think that that sort of view has received insufficient attention. And um, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh I don't know that I buy their argument, which I I won't go into now for for time reasons, but um, I'm sympathetic to that. But that's all to say I'm I'm still not convinced that I need the particular stuff that makes up me as long as the as long as I have the same numerical body, then I consider that to be me since I'm identical with my body. Right. I mean, I don't even think I have the same stuff making up me now. That right. I'm right. Seven. I mean, quite obviously not. Really. I'm, you know, 40 years old. And uh, I can tell you it's not the same stuff. Like, where's my hair go? For example. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a good example. So, you know what I mean? So yeah. um, I could see yeah. I could see the motivation being, right, you know, hey, we're trying to be biblical here and look at Christ. You know, there was nothing left over. He, it was the same body. And so you go, oh, yeah. OK, naturally. But then the, the problem is. If I get eaten by a shark and Christ comes back tomorrow, and those shark, the, my my molecules are now in that shark. Is he going to you know rip out Parker from the side of the shark and stuff? But when you say uh, the same numerical body, is it just about the the composition? So it has to be it could be any any stuff as long as it's in the same composition as as I'm in. Uh, so the way I understand uh, the biology and physics to work of physical objects. Um, I take it that at bottom, 
everything or physical or corporeal thing that exists is at bottom made up all the same sort of stuff, carbon atoms of some kind or whatever. Sure. Um, so yes, I mean, as long as the, um, the informed matter composes a human body that's identical with mine, then I've got me. Now, does a human body have to have uh, the same kind of cells and cellular structure that I currently have? Well, I don't know. I guess I've got reasons to think maybe not um, for, I mean, you know, entropic reasons. I don't suppose that human bodies will be subject to entropy and decay in yeah. new creation, or at least I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. So, so, for, so I've got a disease called cystic fibrosis. Um, mm. That's a genetic, uh, you know, malformation of a particular gene that I have that, uh, you know, wreaks havoc on a human person. Mm -hmm. And um, that does certain things to the cells that make up my body. I assume that the sorts of cells that I have in the resurrection well, neither will be subject to that sort of malady. And I want to say something stronger, like, nor could they be uh, subject to that sort of malady. So I, I have a feeling that, um, I don't have a feeling, I think this, um, that uh, the sort of stuff that will be made out of will be different. I, I do think will be animals, will be organisms, um, but organisms made out of a qualitatively distinct kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so closing up here, I just want to make sure I'm getting this. So, um, the personal identity over time is, is uh, historically tricky, uh, unless you're a substance dualist and you just go, Oh, it's a soul, you know, and you just toss that out there. And yeah, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't analyze it too much. Just, it's the soul, right? Yeah. We yeah. just toss that out there. So like, in what sense will you be you is, is, is memories? Is that, is that something that's really important or is it, no, I mean, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's important for numerical identity, like okay. how to make sure that I'm one and the same numbered object. Mm -hmm. uh, is it important for what we might call narrative identity, like part of the story that is me? Sure. Yeah, okay. of course. Um, right. I mean, there's lots of things that are important for me to think of myself as the sort of person that I am, uh, where I came from, who my parents were, where I grew up, the experiences that I have that I would lose if I had just dramatic amnesia tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but I would not stop being JT Turner. I would still be me. It's just right. that narrative important parts of me, which, which are just as important. They're just not as metaphysically important. There's a different kinds of importance. Yeah. Different question. Yeah. yeah. It's a different sort of question. So, um, you know, that's, a I, I deal with metaphysics. So I don't deal quite with that sort of thing. Um, mm. but that's not to say that it's unimportant. What, it, what is necessary on my view for my numerical identity, both necessary and sufficient, mm -hmm. uh, is that, uh, my form exists, but of course my form only exists if my body exists. Yeah. Uh, a mutual entailment uh, there. So. Yeah. So then, uh, just really quick, we're we're pushing up on the end of our time here. But so we we I said this is important because of the resurrection. Yeah. So so now you've said you know um, it's important that I exist, my body exists because it is the form and matter com uh, composite. So what happens when you die? And this gets into your your particular take on uh, yeah. yeah the resurrection and stuff. Right. What happens when you when you die? Well, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the long answer is uh, I am with my dualist brothers and sisters committed to the claim that 
uh, when you die, you immediately reach the presence of the risen Jesus. So mm -hmm. I, I think everybody should agree with that because I think that's what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. and I think that that's what the majority of the Christian tr tradition has taught. Um, yeah, uh, both East and West, uh, even if um, we provide space for purgatory or something, eventually you're going to get to be with the risen Jesus even prior to the resurrection. I want to say it's immediate, okay? I think the majority report is that it's immediate, so that's mm -hmm. I'm committed to that. So that's the short answer. What happens? Well, you're immediately with Christ. Now the question is, is how does that happen? Well, I think that happens only in the context of the final bodily resurrection. Mm -hmm. uh, it never happens before the bodily resurrection. And so think about those two claims together. I think immediately, if you were to drop dead right now, you would be with Jesus at the final resurrection entails that uh, what happens to you immediately after you die is you end up at the return of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I would be there too, and so would your grandparents or whomever whomever else is raised in Christ. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that gets us into you know my very wonky views of how time might work. I'm not committed to that. Right. It does work that way. Right. It's just a model that says here's a way to think of it. Yeah. Do you call that eschatological presentism? I I, yeah. I feel like I've heard that. That is you. Yeah, that's my my. my my model of time, I don't want to say it's my view of time. It's a model of how it might work that I call eschatological presentism, right? Yeah, we're so we're all, we're all falling asleep at different times. We're all waking up at the same time. Yes, exactly. And it gets weirder uh, in the sense that what I'm doing with that view is uh, try, trying to borrow from two views of time that you might think are contradictory. And maybe they are. I mean, if they are, then, well, there's, you know, law of excluded middle. Right? You can't can't sort of go halfway between them. Well, dialetheanism is open now, too. So uh, yeah, right. That. That, right. So we can just go with Beale and be like, yeah, it's cool. The contradiction is all over the place, especially <laughs> right. doctrine. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So, you know, there's a the sort of normal view of time, which is, you know, what's the present moment? Well, it's now, you know, we're all here right now. Mm -hmm. I'm fully here. You're fully here. We're not like in the past or in the, in the future. We're right now. Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, the more um, received view in philosophy and potentially even the sciences. And that's that uh, nobody fully is in the present. And that's because there is no true present. It's that at best, what we're interacting with is like a time slice or a stage yeah. of you. And really, right. Parker is spread out across the four dimensions or the fourth dimension of time, mm -hmm. like you are space. Um, I try and borrow from those views and say, look, um, maybe instead of you being spread out over an infinite number of times between your birth and, you know, your resurrected life. What if you're spread out just over two times? You're spread out over the time we think of as the now moment, and you're also you also have a temporal part uh, that's just as much a part of you as the part of you we're interacting with now at the time of Jesus' resurrection. So the eschatological present, the present in capital P terms, is two times together. So, so they do, they do meet up though. I'm not trapped here. Yeah. You know, we're, we're recording this podcast forever yeah. while we're also in glory. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, so this part of the time branch does move. Uh, does the part of the time branch in the future move too? Yes, it does. It moves forward when, you know, 
time at that moment moves forward. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it. I like it. This is, this has been super fun. We could talk, uh, we could talk lots more. I, I, uh, please come back on and and talk more. This this has been really fun. Yes. I'm happy to talk about all my nonsense. That's fun. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So your listeners are probably like, Oh my God, that guy can't shut up. Um, No, it's, it's good. It's good. I, I only, I I have a better grasp on you because Dr. Middleton, Dr. Middleton came and debated with uh, JP Moreland here at Ted's. So that, yeah. he, he talked a little bit about uh, some of that, the time stuff as well. Right. Um, so if someone wanted to find uh, more of your work, where should they go? Um, so you can go to philpapers.org. I've got papers loaded on there. You can also go to academia.edu. I'm hesitant to point people to that site because it's a bit spammy. It's very uh, spammy. Yes. Yeah. So like if you sign up or in, indicate you're interested, you might get a bunch of emails that are completely uninteresting to you about that. Um, so philpapers.org maybe is the more reputable uh, area to go. Otherwise, you can go to scholar.google.com mm-hmm. and search for my name and resurrection and you'll probably get a bunch of my stuff on there. Yeah. Awesome. Can you, can you give a plug for your uh, Routledge book? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, got uh, Got it here. So my monograph is on the resurrection of the dead, a new metaphysics of afterlife for Christian thought with Rutledge Press came out in 2018. And then, of course, please do. I'm not saying buy this. It's expensive. But yeah, yeah check out the new uh, newly published TNT Clark handbook of analytic theology. There is just like James and I are over the moon about this. How we got all the people that we did sign <laughs> on to do this thing is like mind-blowing to me. We yeah. have to just be in the right place at the right time. I mean, James is somebody of renown, but I'm a nobody. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just happy to be a part of the project. And uh, it is incredible. Uh, and that's not due to me and James. That's due to all the contributors. Just fantastic work that's in there. So yeah. please do, you know, ch- take a look at that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, we can talk about this some more, and Lord willing, we will. But that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. Take care. <laughs>